Let me invite you to open your Bibles to 1 Samuel chapter 12. You'll note in your bulletin outline there's a large section of Scripture. Uh, this morning we will not be reading all the verses uh, because, uh, well, we don't have time to do that, but we will, uh, it would, I'll encourage you to read that on your own as we uh, study that, uh, this passage this morning. And we'll be looking at several sections of the passages within uh, that scope this morning that highlight uh, our, our subject. Before we come to the Word, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Our Father, we, we do come to you as we've committed this time to study your Word, but uh, what we are doing actually is far more glorious than even that endeavor. We are a people who have come to worship. And now we come to worship by listening for your voice, the voice of your Holy Spirit speaking to us in a way that we perhaps cannot understand or explain, but that we can experience. Lord, even as we read your word and study it, your spirit speaks to us to apply it to our hearts. Lord, I do pray that we, if we hear your voice today, would not harden our hearts but that we would hear what you have to say to us, whether it is a principle for us to, to know and to learn, or whether there is a conviction or an encouragement that we specifically need to embrace this day. Lord, you have promised your word does not come back without the effect that you intend. Your word shapes us and molds us that we not only can live decent lives of comfort, but far more, you shape us and make us more like Jesus. So, Father, as we consider your word today, mold us to be like Christ, that your glory might be evidenced in our lives, that people may know the grace, that we may realize the grace that is ongoing, and that we may love you all the more. I pray all of this in the name of Christ, the Word incarnate. Amen. There may be no phrase more tragic in the American lexicon, English lexicon, than what might have been. I don't know if you're familiar with the name Len Bias or not. If you are a sports fan and old enough, old as me, you might remember him. If you are not quite that chronologically gifted, you... Uh, may have seen the story that's on ESPN's 30 for 30 that recurs periodically, the story of Len Bias, the All-American basketball player from the University of Maryland. Bias was in many ways a man ahead of his times. If you look back to old basketball films, whether it's college or in the pros, you look at it from today's standards and you look at those guys back in the 80s and they all look like a bunch of tall sticks. I mean, they were skinny, they were incredible athletes, but they just look so, so skinny compared to uh, the athletes of today, except for Len Bias. Len Bias was one of the first basketball players to realize the benefits of being in the weight room, and so while everybody else would just simply do their cardio, Bias worked doubly hard both on his cardio and in the weight room, and so he looked like a monster, sculpted like a Greek uh, st statue of a Greek god amongst all those tall, skinny sticks uh, on the basketball court. And with his strength and his natural athletic uh, talent and, and a high intelligence, he was, just, he was just a monster on the basketball court. 
draft day came. Bias was certain to be one of the first cho chosen in the NBA, and so he was in New York and w at waiting for his name to be called. And he didn't have to wait long. The Boston Celtics at the time were the, uh, had the first choice, and the first choice of the entire NBA draft, uh, they chose Len Bias. He was celebrating that evening. And for the first time in his life, he decided he would do something that he had, uh, had never done, and really from those who knew him, never would have guessed, but he had somebody offer him crack cocaine, something that wasn't widely available or known at the time, tried it once, died an hour later of a heart attack. ESPN 60 for, or 30 for 30 tells us that it's, that, uh, and, and you hear testimony that not only was he a tremendous basketball player, but he was even a better person. Sometimes people say that. We had an interesting glimpse. Carolyn went to high school with Len Bias's roommate, who did say Bias was actually a better guy. He was involved in his community. He helped anybody he could help. He was straight. He was, he did, was not a partier. One moment in his life, and all that potential is wasted leaving not only Celtics fans, but anyone who enjoys basketball with the question of what might have been. And anyone who hears a story, just to be reminded of how tragic and sad those words are, reminding us of lost opportunity, squandered potential. It doesn't have to be a celebrity, whether an athlete or a an actress or actor that squanders their potential. We see it all around us. Every high school is filled with people that we assumed would achieve tremendous things and then reunions come and either they're there and have not achieved what you thought they would or they're not there at all because they, they don't want people to see what they become, making choices in life that have taken them and, and squandered their natural abilities. There's nothing more tragic than what might have been. This morning we look at the life of Saul, the first king of Israel. And the reason that I begin with the illustration of what might have been is that Paul is the epitome, probably no better example in, in the scriptures, of what might have been, of squandered and wasted potential. If you were to look back at the attributes that are, how this describe him when he was first selected to be the king of Israel, you realize this guy had everything. He was described as being a head taller and better looking and more physically developed than anybody else in his generation. He had, had a smart and he had a, a charisma that drew people to him. And even in his early kingship, you see that, that smarts played out in practical ways because he was a fairly effective military leader. People just gravitated to him. In fact, he even seemed to have a humility despite having all of these advantages that you would think would make somebody conceited. Because when he was first appointed to be the king, when the news came to him, he just, he just couldn't believe it. It wasn't that he was unaware of all the advantages that he had or in certain ways that he might have been superior to other people. But he just thought about his own pedigree. And then he thought about the people to whom he belonged and, and how God had, had blessed them. And, and he, he, just, he just could not believe that he would be chosen to be the leader of the people of God. In fact, when you consider all those qualities and you, you see this guy, it's, it would be almost impossible to not like him. But at the end of the story, 
His life can't be characterized in any other way than that of utter failure. As we look at his life this morning, I don't want to see just a wasted potential. But I want us to see some cautions and warnings and some direction for our own lives. Again, we're going to be looking at a couple of different passages, looking both into some background and then into a particular incident uh, that really becomes the, the, the most clarifying of, of Saul's uh, failure. And then some other details that will help us understand Saul and then help us to have greater understanding as to all of the rest of his life. Not just so that we can walk away and say, now we, we get this Saul guy. But we can see how his life and his weaknesses and his failures are so often yours and mine as well. His failures in his core, his core really is one of my chief weaknesses and probably that of, of many people. That said, let's begin as we look at uh, 1 Samuel chapter 12. We'll begin there. It's, if, uh, your, most of your Bibles, the heading of that chapter will say Samuel's first uh, farewell address. We're going to jump in the middle of a conversation and look at verse 19 when we start, but we need to kind of understand uh, some things here as, as we look at that just for context. So we're going to get a little bit of background on the background before we move into it, but if you remember the book of Judges, there are some recurring phrases in the book of Judges. We looked a couple of weeks ago, and we saw one of the phrases was, and at that time, everybody did as they saw fit. And so people lived the life the way that they thought, whatever, as long as they weren't hurting anybody else, they thought they could just live their own way. But before that phrase, there's another phrase that is very common and recurs in the book of Judges. And that phrase is this, in that day, Israel had no king. Over and over in the book of Judges, it says Israel had no king. And the people were crying out for a king. Now, while that's recorded in the book of Judges, in one sense it's not actually accurate because Israel did have a king. Their king was God. But Israel, the people at that time, were continually crying out and saying, you know, this isn't working out for us. We, we see all the other nations, all the other kids have a king. We want a king just like all the other kids. We want to be just like everybody else. And they kept crying out for that king. And Samuel, for whom this book is named, and, and who was the, the judge and the, the prophet that God was speaking through, God, through Samuel, warned the people of what uh, they could expect if he gave them another king, if they were to, in a sense, uh, move and, and have a human king. He told them some of the things that they would have to expect. I mean, not only would this guy be raised up and rule over them, even though he was really from among them, he would live at their expense and, and live high on the hog at their, uh, at their expense. And in order to pay for his lavish lifestyle, that they could expect a federal tax and their income tax, the IRS would claim as much as 10% of their in income annually. And who wants to pay 10% on their income uh, for anything? I mean, who can even imagine that outrageous standard of taxation. And the people said, you know what, that's fine. We'll, we'll take it. We just want a king that we can see, that we can understand. We want a king who is just like us. And so the Lord gave them the king. Uh, and, and the king that he raised up was Saul. Now, in this text, as Saul is speaking here, and what's known as, uh, not Saul, Samuel is speaking here, known as his farewell address. In one sense, that's a somewhat of a misnomer. This is Samuel's farewell address. It's kind of like some of the musicians that are having their farewell concerts. 
and then they have another farewell concert and another farewell concert. And at some point you say, I thought this was the farewell. And you find out it's just part of a farewell tour. Well, that's kind of what's going on here for Samuel. It says it's his farewell address. And then you see, if you read through the rest of these books, uh, Samuel's still on the scene. Samuel still, well, is still very involved. Samuel's still speaking God's words and, and still guiding Israel. Now, it is accurate in one sense because this is the last time that Samuel addresses all of the people. Every time after this, you see Samuel just interacting primarily with, uh, with, with, uh, with Saul and, and with the, the leaders, but he doesn't address the whole nation. And so here he's in the middle of his farewell speech, but it's an interactive speech. And the people cry out in verse 19 in response to, and finally with a realization of their, what, what really, how their, their uh, crying out for a king may have been taken. Verse 19, it says, And all the people said to Samuel, Pray for your servants to the Lord your God, that we may not die, for we have added to all of our sins this evil, to ask for ourselves a king. So Israel had finally, it dawned on them and realized when they were crying out and saying, we want a king, they were firing God. They were saying, God, this isn't, you're not, you're not measuring up to what we want. We want something else. And it dawned on them finally, you know, that might be offensive to God. And in addition to their rebelliousness, they're realizing, okay, we were a sinful people, and now we fired God. God could rightly be upset with us. And so they're asking Samuel, pray, pray for us. Because we realize that might not have been the wisest thing that we could have done. And so pray for us so that we don't die from our, our own stupidity. And, and that's what the people are asking Samuel in his last address. And Samuel gives a response here that really we need to see in, in two parts. Samuel's response in, 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 we find in verse 20. Samuel said to the people, Do not be afraid. You have done all this evil. Yet do not turn aside from following the Lord, but serve the Lord with all of your hearts. And do not turn aside after empty things and, that cannot profit or deliver, for they, they are empty. For the Lord will not forsake his people for his, for his great name's sake, because it has pleased the Lord to make you a people for himself. Moreover, as for me, far be it from me that I should sin against the Lord by ceasing to pray for you, and I will instruct you in the good and right way. Only fear the Lord and serve Him faithfully with all your heart, for consider what great things He has done for you. But if you still do wickedly, you shall be swept away, both you and your king. And so after the request of people saying to Samuel, please pray for us that we don't die as a consequence of our own stupidity, Samuel says to them a couple of things. He says, first, essentially this, he said, don't be afraid. He doesn't say don't worry about it. He's not saying, you know, it's okay. He says it's an evil thing. What you did was an evil and wicked thing. He's not, not minimizing the, the sinfulness of the people, but he's saying don't live in fear of your own foolishness. Trust in God. As for me, you asked me to pray for you, I wouldn't, dare, I wouldn't dream of stopping to pray for you. Because if I stopped praying for you, I would be sinning against God because God has raised me up to pray for you. And as for God, he's not going to withdraw from you because of this. And so there's a great reassurance in the first part of their, their prayer their being answered. But he also gives them instruction. He says, but make sure you follow God. If you continue in the way that you're going, then you will be wiped out, you and your king. And in that phrase, what he's reminding them of when they fired God as the king, 
they no longer had a king who was able to live for them that they could live in. They had a king who had his own issues, had to pay for the price of his own sin as well, who was as equally in need of grace as they were. And he says that they said that you, you have, you're responsible for the way that you live. You can't trust your king to be living for you. And that's essentially what, what, uh, what Saul tells them in response. Now, that's come out of a backdrop that help us understand, because Saul's already the king here. Now we move into a climax of, of Saul's life. There's a lot that comes afterwards, but in chapter 13, we find, what, if I would label the first part, Samuel's uh, farewell address. The second would be Saul's fatal mistake. Saul comes back onto the scene here. People love Saul. Saul had been reigning for a couple of years. And Israel's enemies were gathering around them. They knew there was a battle that was about to come. Saul does something that's interesting here because there's thousands and thousands of people, as we look in the first part of, of, first, of, of chapter 13, uh, uh, we see um, in verse 5, the Philistines mustered to fight with Israel 30,000 chariots and 6,000 horsemen and troops like the sand of the seashore in multitude. I don't know how many that is. It sounds like a lot to me. But if you back up to the beginning of the chapter, with that showing up and beginning to see the first waves of that kind of a force that's coming against you, here's what Saul does. We see in verse 2. Saul chose 3,000 men of Israel. 2,000 were with Saul in the hill country, and 1,000 were with Jonathan. So with these thousands and thousands of, of forces coming with advanced technology, Saul doesn't say, hey, I need every man, woman, child available in Israel. He says, I'm going to choose you, you, and he takes 3,000 people. He's getting himself prepared for war. God has worked in this way before. It's not the strength of the army, but it's the power of God, and they understood that. And so Saul was selecting his army. And then he's given an, an instruction that we see here in a moment as we move to uh, verse 8. You see the evidence of that. Saul was getting ready, and Samuel, the prophet, said, okay, here's what you need to do. You're going to wait for seven days. Don't run out into battle now. Don't go out with your own wisdom or your own strength, even if you had strength. Wait for seven days. On the seventh day, I will come back. Samuel, who was not only a prophet, but was also a priest and therefore qualified to offer the sacrifice, Samuel says, I'll come back, and I will offer the sacrifice. I'll intercede on behalf of and I will have the Lord be with you. We will seek the Lord to bless you in your endeavor. And so as we look at verse 8, we see that Saul waited. Verse 8, Saul waited seven days, the appointed time, time appointed by, Sam, for, by Samuel. But then something happens. While Saul was waiting the seven days, now the seventh day comes, and apparently Samuel's stuck in traffic somewhere. Because the rest of the verse, we read this, but Samuel did not come to Gilgal, and the people were scattering from him. So Saul is the leader of the army. He's done what he's instructed to do. He's waited seven days. We don't know whether he waited the full you know, 24 hours on that last day as well, or if now it's noon and the, the armies were getting closer, the battle was imminent, and, and now you know, we've waited. We, we, we can't keep putting this off. But one of the things is that we see from this text is Saul's not the only one that saw these armies, all the armies of Israel. And some of the people began to say, some of them went and hid in holes, and some of them actually d jumped into caves. Some of them jumped into graves. 
that happens to still be open in order to hide. And some of them just says, started wandering off. They were going AWOL. And so Saul is the commander of an army that is leaving. It's not a particularly large army to begin with, and yet now the army is leading. And so he's realizing, I've got some problems here. I've got a decision that I need to make. This is not good. We want the Lord's blessing, but Samuel's not here to offer the sacrifice, but I've got to do something because I'm responsible, I'm the leader, and I can't have my army running off. Maybe he was thinking, I can't blame them. We haven't sought the Lord's blessing, and this is an overwhelming force. And so Saul had a, a very difficult decision that he had to make. What do you do? Do you go into battle without God's blessing? Without seeking the face of God? Or... You ask for the Lord to be present even though you're not really the one who is qualified. And Saul made a decision that if I was in his shoes, I would think seems reasonable. Better to do something and seek the Lord's face and hope that the Lord will overlook the inadequacy of what you do than not bring the Lord in at all. And Samuel tells the people, bring the sacrifice to me. Samuel, and excuse me, Saul offers the sacrifice for the people. And as soon as he's done with the sacrifice, Samuel comes. Saul apparently has no idea of the gravity of the situation or, or the weight of what he has just done because when he sees Samuel, he's, he kind of waves to him and says, Hey, where have you been? And Samuel's taking in everything that's going on around him. He asks a question. What have you done? Saul seemed to be still a little obtuse, not really aware, but at the same time realizing Samuel was concerned, and he gives this explanation. Look, I, I was in a tough situation. I was in a jam. I had to do something. I didn't want to. I had to. His actual words, as we look in the text, we see in verse 12, so I forced myself and offered, offered the sacrifice. So it wasn't something that he just wanted to, go, to do. It's just something he realized, I, just, I, didn't have, I didn't see any other alternative. And so that was his defense. Seems reasonable. So Samuel's words must have been particularly stunning. When he says in verse 13, Samuel says to Saul, you have done foolishly. You have not kept the command of the Lord your God with which He commanded you. For then the Lord would have established your kingdom over Israel forever. But now your kingdom shall not continue. The Lord has, assigned, has sought out a man after His own heart. And the Lord has commanded him to be prince over His people because you have not kept what the Lord commanded you. I don't know about you, but when I read that, I'm just prone to think, wow, that seems a bit harsh. One strike, you're out. Some of you may have played in softball leagues where they speed the game up and they tell you you start out with a one and one count and there's always people who just don't remember that. But even when it's still, it just seems so little. Two strikes and, and you're out. Saul didn't even have that. One strike, you're done. No more. 
makes me begin to think, well, what, what happened to grace? I mean, I thought this was a God of second chances, God who was you know, slow to anger and, and forgiving. To make it more complex, or at least perplexing. It doesn't seem to be that big of a deal. I mean, not when you considered the options. I mean, what is it that the guy did? He, he was stuck in a difficult place, and, and so he became a little impatient. He offered a sacrifice, seeking God's face, seeking God's presence, seeking God's, God's help. It doesn't seem to be that big of a deal that that strike and you're done. And it certainly doesn't seem to be that big of a deal when you consider the next guy that's coming after him. I mean, here's the prophecy. Here's what Samuel says is, God sought somebody else out. You're done. God's picked somebody else who's a man after his own heart. And, his, and he will now reign in your place. I mean, do you know who the next guy is? It's David. Now, we sing of David. David is tremendous, uh, is tremendous gift to us, and we, we, we know that David's a man after God's own heart. But when we weigh Saul's sin against the sin that we know of in David's life, you wonder, what were, what, what, what's going on here? Saul got a little impatient, offered a, offered a sacrifice. David not, didn't even lead his people into battle. He just sent them out into battle. While he was still on the, at home, he see, looks out, sees a woman that he decides that he wants. She's married, doesn't bother him. He summons her. He's the king, so you don't deny that. He brings her. He seduces her. He has uh, an affair with her. She conceives a child. He decides, we're going to cover this up, so I'm going to bring the husband back in. We're going to co- concoct a story. The husband doesn't buy it, so David conspires to have him killed. Husband's sent back out, the husband is killed on the front, and then David covers the whole thing up. Guy offers a sacrifice. A guy lies, cheats, commits adultery, and conspires to murder. Saul, you're done. David, your kingdom will endure forever. Does anybody else find that hard? Confusing? Difficult to swallow? I mean, it, it just, it, it's, it is rather perplexing. So how do we understand this? I think first we need to recognize that for God there is no small sin. When we are told the wage of sin is death, that means the wage of sin is death. Saul was simply removed. He was fired. Uh, but all sin warrants death. There is no small sin. Looking at it this way, Saul might have been looking at things the same way that I'm prone to look at it and say he didn't know about what David would do, but in the scheme of things and the way we would weigh sin, it didn't seem to be that big of a deal that he would be done forever. But we do understand when God says all sin is offensive, there, there's a consequence and a price for all sin. We need to understand that God means that. It helps us to understand when Jesus tells us and we're instructed in terms of dealing with one another that we're to take the plank out of our own eye instead of the speck in, uh, before we deal with the speck in somebody else's. And so we're to have a perspective that our sin, no matter how insignificant it may seem, is great. And we need to deal with our own sin before we worry about other people's sin. It helps us to understand what Paul was talking about when he passed on to his protege, Timothy. And he said, here's a, trust, a saying worthy of all consideration God came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the worst. Paul embodying and saying we need to take our own sin seriously. And Saul 
didn't take his sin seriously here, or doesn't seem to take his sin seriously at all. Now, that doesn't answer the question about why Saul's sin seemed to be uh, punished so severely, and David's sin uh, seems to almost be brushed over, at least uh, in this judgment. But it's an important principle that we cannot overlook in our own lives. It's not a matter of seeing where we rate compared to other people. We have sin in our lives, and our sin is serious, and God deals with our sin. But we also need to realize, secondly, that God looks at the heart. David's response to being confronted by Nathan, the prophet who succeeded Samuel, about his sin was brokenness. Now, David had to be suckered into it. Nathan went to him and said, we have a problem in the kingdom. There's a rich guy, and there's a poor guy. The poor guy has, you know, one little lamb, and the rich guy decided he wanted it, and so he killed the, killed the, uh, uh, the poor guy, and he took the lamb. And David was incensed that that kind of injustice would take place in his kingdom. He just knew it wasn't right. It wasn't going to be accepted in, his, in the kingdom where he was the king and reigned over it. And David said, hey, whoever did that, he deserves to die. And Nathan said, you're that man. And David's response at that point was just to break down weeping and laying himself open before the Lord. We know what he was thinking because he recorded his actions in his journal that day in Psalm 51. And realizing, having been confronted of his own depravity, of his own sinfulness, he just weeps before the Lord and says, Surely, I have been a sinner from the time I was in my mother's womb. I'm far worse than anybody can even imagine. I'm far worse than I even expect. And he is just broken before God. Because his heart really does belong to God. And we understand that just because our hearts belong to God, we're not susceptible to sin. We all are. David's heart genuinely belonged to the Lord, and he was broken because of his own sin. Saul, on the other hand, his response to sin was something different. If you move ahead uh, a couple of chapters into chapter 15, we don't have time to look at all of it, but we need to consider what he does. Saul, was, uh, even though his time was, uh, was numbered, he was still the king, and he continued to function, still had some successes as the king, and he was going into another battle, and the Lord had given him specific instructions. He was to go in and wipe out not only all the enemy, but the enemy's all the enemy's uh, stuff and, and the cattle, everything. There was to be nothing left, just total annihilation. And Saul went, won the, his army won the victory, and Saul allowed some of the cattle and some of the sheep to, uh, to, to be spread out. And they didn't wipe all of that out. They just thought, we'll just keep some of the loot. And Samuel comes and confronts him and says, why didn't you obey what the Lord told you to obey? We see a pattern here. Samuel, after, I mean, Saul, after he was found guilty and declared he may have been sad, but he didn't become meticulous and, and look at his own life. He still was a compromiser. And his response was, I did do what the Lord told me to do. And Samuel said, well, then what's that bleeding I'm hearing as the sheep were in the background behind them? And Samuel realized he was, had not been faithful. And so Saul then begins to negotiate. Samuel tells him, you know, you are done. And in verse 24 of chapter 5, Saul says to Samuel, I have sinned, for I have transgressed the commandment of the Lord and your words, because I feared the people and obeyed their voice. Now, therefore, please pardon my sin and return with me, that I may worship the Lord. And Samuel said to Saul, I will not return with you, for you have rejected the word of the Lord, and the Lord has rejected you from being king over Israel. And Samuel turned to go away, and Saul seized the skirt of his robe and it tore. And Samuel said to him, the Lord has torn the kingdom from, of Israel from you this day and has given it to a neighbor of yours who is better than you and also the glory of the lord will not lie or have regret 
or he is not a man that should have regret. Saul then said, I have sinned. Yet, and here's what's significant here. I have sinned. Yet honor me now before the elders of my people and before Israel and return with me that I may bow before the Lord your God. So Samuel turned back after Saul and Saul bowed before the Lord. So Saul realizes his guilt and he is sorry about his guilt. He is apologetic and, and he's saying, let's just, let's, what Saul's trying to do here is rather than being broken as David is, Saul realizes, okay, there's some problems here and it, it, maybe it's come to an end and he's trying to negotiate a buyout. He realizes he doesn't have a hope, but he's saying, okay, let's just go back to town. And Samuel says, I'm not going back with you. And then Saul's argument is, look, come on back to town. We don't want the people to know what's going on here. Let's just do this peacefully and quietly. We don't want, to, we don't want the people to be upset. We don't want them to turn on me. We, we want... Even in his confession that he listened to the people, he doesn't understand that the reality of his problem is, has now become exposed. God looks at the heart, and the difference is that David is a man whose heart belongs to God, and he's broken in his sin. Saul just tries to manage through his sin. And the root of Saul's sin is exposed here. And it looks a little like selfishness, but the real root is that he is insecure. See, Saul looks to people and to position and to circumstances for his security rather than looking to the one who has called him and who has promised to sustain him. And looking at his own life and looking at circumstances, he finds himself on shaky ground. He's an insecure individual, and he's so concerned about what people will think. He's so concerned about what's going on. That's his priority, and he is a deeply flawed individual because he is an insecure person. And that insecurity, which is toxic, manifests itself in a number of practical ways. One, it looks selfish. Others, it affects his decision-making. Uh, and, and, and then ultimately, when all, all uh, is, is let go, it moves into spitefulness, vengeance, and, and he goes on to a terror. We need to realize that that's the root of his problem and, and that insecurity manifests itself in many, many ways. And the, real, and, and the reason we need to realize that, or at least the reason that I need to realize that, is because I look at this and I consider Saul, and I realize I am far more like Saul than I really want to admit even to myself. Because I am so prone to look at what people think, or the circumstances. Am I winning? Am I losing? Am I succeeding? Do people respect me? Are people following? Are people encouraging? Do people love me? And I'm focusing far more on those things than the fact that I have been called by God to be his child. And the God who has called me to be his child has said that I will never leave you nor forsake you. I will, I will provide for you. And I keep going into myself and my insecurity manifests itself in so many ways and I mask it so well with certain levels of confidence because of certain gifts that God has given me and certain positions and opportunities that I have. There is a reality to my confidence, but underneath that is a sinkhole of insecurity that can collapse at any single, any single moment. I'm far more like Saul, and so this is an important thing for me to realize. My insecurity cannot just be mass covered or managed. I need to deal with it, because otherwise it will show itself in certain ways. But what I also need to realize is that not just the example and do opposite of what Saul does and realize my security, I'm reminded of something. If we go back, we're not going to have to turn there, but we go back to what Samuel said to the people when they said, 
please forgive us or pray that we don't have to die for our own foolishness. His instruction to them is not only would the Lord not turn from them, but he told them at that time, look, you must follow God. That's always good advice. But the reason behind that is that the king that, they now ha- the king that they now had wasn't one who could live for them. They had rejected that king. They didn't have God as their king at the time. They had a man as their king who had his own sin. A man can't be a king who can live for us. Only God is capable of living for us. But you and I have a king that God had always intended who had not yet been put on the throne. He is our security. Because not only while we are instructed to follow and seek after God, we are to seek after God who is that king. Because God became man and has now become king. Our king, Jesus. And in him, not only are we able to trust because he has lived for us and we are forgiven in his life. But even more than that, rather than just simply saying, make sure you seek after God and live for God, our king, who is alive today, has sent a replacement, his Holy Spirit, to dwell within all who believe, to enable us to seek after God and to live for God's glory. Our security is not on our position, our gifts, or what people think, but on the King of Kings, who God has established. And that King has loved us, and He's proven it. And He wants us to be secure in Him, and to turn to Him, both with our weaknesses and our failures, so that we realize, I've loved you and I've paid for it. And our desire to do right, so that we, he says, if you love me, do what I've commanded. If you want to show how to love the, him as he's loved you, you just walk in his ways. And he's empowered us to do it. He's also established for us a reminder, a series of reminders, but one being this table. So that if we are prone to doubt, which we are, his love and our security in him He says, take this and eat and remember what I've done for you.